Uh, back in the early 1930s, my brother Polk and I represented the Walsh family who owned the, the lime kill at, at Round Rock, Texas. And uh, there's Ed Walsh, and he was a ramrod, the, the boy that run the family, the man that run the family. And there were several brothers and a sister named Kate McGinnis. And she, she still lived at the time of her death uh, right across, the, uh, uh, right on the east side of Tom Miller Dam there. They owned quite a little bit of property in that one time, the Walsh family did. And, and uh, their father had come over from, uh, from uh, Ireland in the 1870s to help work on the capital. He was a rock mason and a lime man. And he came over here to, when this Scottish uh, company bought, uh, took all the land in, in the panhandle to build this uh, capital for the state of Texas. But Mr. William Walsh was his name. But he had uh, uh, gone out through the country trying to find land that he could get limestone off of. And in the late 70s, uh, 1870s, or, or the early 1880s, well, he bought this thousand acres of land that's now called the Davenport Ranch out on the William, on the, uh, the, the Trammell Survey, Burke Trammell Survey, in the, what is now called the Peninsula area. And uh, uh, I had, uh, since 1920, or I'll say 1936, along there, 1934, 5, and 6, I was buying land that was on the east side of the, of the, uh, the uh, Walsh Place, and, and that's where Westlake Highlands is now, and the high road runs up there, and then I, I bought the land south of it, which is where Wild Basin Park is now, and I also bought an interest in the Roy Ranch, which lie, which lie west of it. And so uh, we had been their attorney in uh, some damage suits and things of that kind, and just close personal friends. We hunted on their place, and, and uh, we were just close personally, like I said. Well, they wanted me to buy that place when they found out I was buying this land all around them, uh, and they offered to sell it to me for $10,000. That is $10 an acre for the thousand acres, and it, uh, it was well worth it, I guess, at the time, but it was about uh, 30 years from fruition. So I, I couldn't buy it. I was buying land and joining it for four and four and a half an acre, and I thought I was doing well to do that. But anyway, uh, we were close personal friends, and they didn't know where the land was, actually. They were not interested in it. They were interested in the lime business, and uh, at one time they owned uh, this section of land that lies north of, uh, of Enfield Road up to Winsor Road on the north. Uh, Winsor Road bordered on the north, and, and Exposition Boulevard bordered it on the east, and it run on out to the lake on the west. It was just uh, one of the finest pieces of land in Austin, and so they were making money on it. It was ready to go, and, and I actually represented them in a lawsuit uh, with reference to the boundary of the south edge of, of Enfield Road at one time. That is, joined the, the Brackenridge track there. But anyway, the Walsh uh, uh, boys, uh, 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 boys called me one day, and uh, I guess it's about the early part of 1940, somewhere along in there, and uh, told me that they uh, had a, a widow woman from from uh, the down in the border somewhere, down on the Mexican border that was rich, and, and she's looking for a ranch, and uh, old Doug Barnhill, who run a second-hand furniture store down on Red River Street then, who was also a client of my brother Polk and I, that Doug had gotten a hold of her somehow or another, and, and he thought he could sell her a ranch. Well, uh, Doug was not in the, the real estate business, but in those days anybody could, could make a commission without, having, uh, without uh, being a broker. They didn't have the brokerage law then. So, uh, 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 Ed Walsh told me, he said, we don't know where the lines are on our land out there. We've never paid any attention to it. And he said, you own land on each side of it. Maybe you could go out and show old Doug and, and this woman uh, where, where our land lies and see if she'd be interested in buying it. Well, I told him I'd do that. I, I couldn't buy it, and I'd like to get somebody to buy it to do something with it. And so we set up a, an engagement. Old Doug Bornhill said he'd going to meet me out at the Roy Ranch house there at a certain uh, time one day. And... And as a matter of fact, that's the only way you could get back in there. Then you had to go through the 
their stock pens at the Royal Ranch and work back through uh, three or four gates there going through their complex there where the home is and then work back in towards where the San Stevens Road now runs and then uh, there was a, some old roads, uh, called the Mormon Trail and some other roads that run back through the Walsh Place, plumb on over to my land on the east there. Followed the ridges where the old, and the boys had been in there for uh, many years of cutting cedar and stealing wood and running off with everything they, over there because the owners didn't have, any, didn't have any say with it. But I made a deal to meet uh, uh, Doug Bourne Hill at the ranch, Royal Ranch House there at a certain time. And it was in the summertime because I know it was warm. And I didn't know exactly where the where the lines and fences were because although I owned the Roy Ranch, uh, uh, Ike Fowler was uh, running cattle on it and I knew Ike's little boy would, uh, knew where the lines were. So I made a deal with his little boy, I forget his name now, uh, which one it was because Ike had several of them. He's going to meet us there at the Roy Ranch house and, and we're going over with this rich widow woman and Doug Barnhill and, and kind of point out generally where the lines were because there were no fences on the east side and this old fence between the Roy Ranch and the and the uh, Walsh place was torn down in places and nobody uh, could keep stock in there. And Ike was uh, renting the uh, Roy Ranch and had, you know, nothing suited him better than let his stock run all over the Walsh place too, which was what he was doing. And so we met out there at the uh, Roy Ranch house, the little Fowler boy and I, and, and here come this uh, rich widow woman, so to speak, with old Doug Barnhill. They came in a truck or a pickup of some kind. Anyway, the little Fowler boy and I had to get in the back end and ride out through there. and. Uh, I think maybe the little fellow boy stayed inside so he could point out the roads because it, it was a masterful deed to find out how to get over to the middle of this uh, waltz place at that time. There was a, uh, a mountain over there. It, wasn't, it didn't look like it had more than two or three acres on top of it. And it was called the Lone Tree or the Lone Mound Mountain, a Lone Man Mountain. I don't know what, but the short boy had pointed it out to him and said that was the Lone Tree or Lone, Lone Man Mountain. But I believe it's Lone Tree, my best recollection is, at this particular moment. And so uh, we were going to go over to that point, and it is a high, high point ridge on about two-thirds of the way back from the river to, to where the south line was. And from that point, you could see the, uh, the landmark showing the general boundaries of this thousand acres that's supposed to be there. And so we rode out there, and uh, that's the first time I'd ever met Mrs. Davenport, and she was dressed for the occasion. She was, uh, I learned later, and that she had a costume for every occasion. And on this occasion, she was going to uh, buy a ranch. And so she was dressed as a cow gal, and she looked just exactly like the counterpart of, of Tom Mix. She, she had uh, uh, the hat, and she had the, the clothing, and, and she, she was really docked up. And it was a brand-new outfit, I could see that, and it had pockets all over it. And, and so uh, we went out, and we got out in the, to, to this lone tree mountain, and we got out of the, the vehicle we was in, and, and the little fowler boy pointed out, right when we went through the fence on the, on the west side, he said, now this is the west boundary. And we got over there, uh, and I pointed out this mountain just at the end of the high road that was on my land, and that was about a quarter of a mile away, and, and I told him that's where my line was, and, and uh, generally how the lines ran, and I pointed out on the south side where uh, some of the ridges there where Wild, Wild Basin Park is uh, is now, and, and I, I told her that's just about where the south line is. And she looked around, you know, and walled her eyes up and down, and she said, uh, well, I'll take it. Uh, evidently, Doug had already told her it was going to be $40,000. That was the price at that time. And she said, well, I'll take it. And uh, I had learned somehow or another through the grapevine. Maybe maybe Ed Walsh told me, said that that's what she's paying for it. But anyway, we knew $40,000 was was the asking price. And, and uh, she didn't bargain at all. She just said, I'll take it. And she said, now let's seal the deal. And we was all standing there outside the vehicle. And she reached in one of her pockets there somewhere. She had lots of them and pulled out a, a flask about, I'd say, a pint of whiskey. 
and she uncorked it and, and she uh, uh, took a swig off of it and then she uh, handed it to me and uh, to seal the deal and I took a swig off of it without wiping the mouth off and, and then I handed it back to her and uh, she uh, turned around to old Doug and handed it to him and he took a swig off of it to, to seal the deal and he handed it back to her and so uh, she looked at this little old fowler boy and she's putting her cap back on it and she shook it a little bit and she said, son said, uh, you, you can't have any of this because this put lead in your pencil. Now she didn't say that in a vulgar way and, and it wasn't taken that way. She was just able to uh, talk rough and tumble talk and ballroom talk and, and still not be offensive with it. And I found that out in my experience with her all along. You had to realize that what her background was and, and what her present was because she could at that time afford to say and do whatever she damn pleased pretty well. And, and she was yet, uh, in my opinion, very fine, uh, 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 polite, and I thoroughly respected her on most everything she did. I didn't always agree with her, but I certainly respected her judgment, and, and I respected the, the things she did, because she lived a full life, and, and, and like I say, she could afford to pamper herself, which she did most of the time. But, of course, we repaired ourselves back to the city of Austin, and Doug picked it up from there on and went on and made the deal, and I'm sure he got a commission out of it. I didn't get anything out of it because uh, I was representing the Walsh Boys as a lawyer, and I made a, uh, a little bit of money every year out of them, and then their friendship was worth just so much. Uh, and, and so uh, Mrs. Davenport then became my neighbor. And so uh, uh, she told me later on that uh, I asked her why it didn't take her any longer than that to make her mind up about buying that ranch at $40,000. That, that was a fortune to me in those days and fortune to most everybody else. Well, she said, Mr. Shelton, she always called me Mr. Shelton, although I know she was a few years older than me. Uh, she said, Mr. Shelton said, uh, uh, I was making uh, about $40,000 a month of royalties off of my oil properties at that time. And, and uh, so it didn't take me long to make my mind up. I wanted to get me a ranch where I could uh, get away from this business of, of striking oil. She said, it's just my luck, though, to get a nice place like this that I want. And, and they'll just about strike oil on it, and then I'll have to move again. Well, I thought in my mind, I said, I hope they do strike oil on you because I got to land on each side of you, and I, and I need a little of that oil money. But I didn't tell her that openly, but she knew that I wasn't uh, rolling around in wealth by the way I dressed and, and what I was doing. But anyway, she made that remark, and she said what she was going to do now, she was going to get her a dozier, and she was going to get all that scrub brush off of that thing and going to raise her some fine grass there and raise her some Bramer cattle. Well, I thought to myself that, for the last hundred years, nobody had raised enough grass on that to support a jackrabbit, but uh, she was having her little dream, and then she decided she better survey it and find out where her lines really were. And so she got uh, Martin Mutcave. He's a, he had surveyed my land that joined hers on the, on the east and on the south at one time, and so he was going to run her line back from the river uh, on the east side, be her east line, my west line. And I had already found out that that uh, uh, my, my land run, well, the lines were not to be found, really. They were about 20 feet off, and uh, there's a big old rock mound back at the southeast corner of her land, uh, of, of my land it was, that on her line, it was 20 feet off, off the line. Well, anyway, she discovered that. Uh, Martin did. Martin discovered it and told her he couldn't find the line, but this is where her line ought to be. So <clears throat> she was staying at that time down at the Austin Hotel, and so she called me up. Uh, said she knew me, and not only being a landowner, but I'd been out there when she bought the land. So we'd, we'd uh, friends, and so she called me up and wanted to talk to me. So I went down and met her in the lobby of the, of the Austin Hotel one day, and she said, Mr. Shelton said, my surveyor says that 
that uh, your line encroaches on my line about 20 or 30 feet. And I said, well, uh, Mrs. Davenport, uh, you're not going to have any fuss with me about where those lines are out there. I said, nobody can prove where they are. There's no fences there. But I understand you're going to build about a six-foot fence there to keep your Bremer cattle in. And, and uh, I want you to be sure and put it on the line. And uh, uh, if you're not certain about the, uh, the, where the line is, you just put it 20 feet further over on my land. And, uh, and it'll be worth more than the land is to me. Well, she didn't get a squabble with me out of that. So... Uh, but she didn't offer me another drink either at that particular time. For some reason or another, about the time she had all this brush piled up in her pasture over there and had her fence built, well, uh, I made a, a kind of halfway. She come at me. Yeah, she come at me. And she wanted to buy 100 acres of my land that lie east of her over there where the high road is now and where West Lake Highlands is located. I had no roads into it from any direction at that time. That is in the 40s. And, and uh, she wanted to know what I'd take for it. Well, I told her I wouldn't take less than $100 an acre for it. And uh, that is a hundred acres, be ten thousand dollars. And uh, I figured at that time I could, uh, I could uh, pay the taxes, back taxes on it. And I hadn't paid taxes in four or five years. I couldn't get to it. It didn't wasn't worth anything to me at that particular time. I just bought it for a future investment. And so she said, "Well, I'll take it." And uh, so she said, "You get the abstract and things ready, and and get the title all ready, and we'll close out when when uh, you get things ready." Well, in those days, that's the way you made deals. You didn't make a written contract. And so I set about getting my abstract up and. And I sent it to give her to her. She, she was at the hotel, at Austin Hotel about that time because she was doing all this work on her place. And, and so uh, uh, I gave her the abstract and I paid my taxes, which was about $500. And, and we finally got everything ready. And about, it took about a month to get, get wound up. And so I met her down at the Austin Hotel one day. She called me. Yeah, she summons me down there to talk to her about this deal. And uh, she said, Mr. Shelton said, my secretary and, and some other people uh, don't think that that land's worth a hundred dollars an acre. Well, I said, Miss Davenport, I told you it wasn't worth a hundred dollars an acre when you bought it. But I said that's what I'd take for it. And uh, I said uh, I, I didn't want to sell it to you. You asked me to sell it to you. Uh, and so uh, I was a little upset about it. I said, Now you've made me go to the trouble of having this abstract uh, uh, prepared, and and I paid my back taxes, which I could ill afford to do at this particular time. And I said, You put me in a bind. Oh, she said, now, Mr. Shelton, I don't want you to feel upset about it. She said, now, I'll let you have the $10,000. But she said, I just don't want the land. And you couldn't keep from, from admiring her sportsmanship. But I said, now, Miss Davenport, you're not going to give me anything. I said, now, we're friends now, but you're not going to get me indebted to you under any circumstances. So I got my abstract, and I kind of made like I was halfway mad. But that's the only way I'd ever paid my taxes to be pushed into something like that. And so I did. And so we didn't fall out over it. Anyway, I, but I kept the land, and finally I sold it for several thousand dollars an acre. I hold it another ten years. But uh, then, for some reason or another, about that time, she had uh, all these piles of brush all over her place, and within a hundred feet of my of my fences over there. And uh, I had to go to Scott White uh, Hospital for some kind of a checkup, his ulcers. And, and uh, while I was up there, well, I got a call from uh, my son in, in, at home here, and he said that Ms. Davenport, they had fires going on on her place and the sparks were flying all over my land over there. And it just, of course, I, if I didn't have one, I'd have had one then. So I, I told him I'd, I'd get her. She was in Houston. I called down there and I found out what her number was. It's about 11, 12 o'clock at night. And I got on the phone. And I told her, I said, now you got some people over there burning that brush and the sparks are flying all over my land. I said, I don't know what your land's worth. But when you start to burning my land up, you're going to pay me $200 an acre for it. So you better stop that burning. Well, uh, before I got back to Austin, she had all the burning stopped, and, and uh, 
Actually, those piles of brush that she had piled in there then, they did not burn up. And she didn't burn anymore, or whoever owned it didn't burn anymore, until the April of 1961, when we had that terrible fire that came down through her place and set up, uh, burned most of West Lake Highlands at the time. But when, I never will forget that on the, the night after that first fire that in 1961, that there must have been a thousand brush piles as, as big as an automobile over in her pasture that you get up on the hill over where my home was, where Caravan Circle is now, and it looked just like uh, 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 a big army was having the campfires over there when that fire came through. But she didn't burn anymore. Uh, there were no, none of that brush was burned from in the late 1940s until uh, 1960. After Mrs. Davenport held it for a while, it's uh, my recollection that a man named Dewitt Langford came into her life to, uh, with reference to this land at least, and uh, he had a background of being a real wheeler and a dealer, and, and uh, I think he finally got it from her on some kind of a trade on some stock on a mining venture in Utah or somehow or another. But anyway, he convinced her that it was a tax gimmick and, and uh, in fact, that if he'd give her the land and take what he was giving her, that she'd make more money than she could by selling it for cash. And, and he got a hold of it. But uh, Mr. Langford's uh, uh, background, uh, so far as I remember, was this. He uh, had, uh, was the guy that opened up and, and founded the Great Pet uh, Bottling Company down in the East Texas or over in Louisiana somewhere, and uh, he got into them. He was going to run the Coca-Cola and the Dr. Pepper people out of business, but he didn't look far enough ahead to realize that when he bottled the, the stuff that he had, or, the, or when he got his bottles full that, that he had uh, bought to start with, that the Coca-Cola people and the, and the, uh, the other competition he had had uh, ran it up and gotten uh, all the bottling capacity tied into their investment, and he couldn't get any more bottles to fill them to fill up after he got his first uh, consignment out, and he couldn't get the ones that's in the field back fast enough to keep going, so he kind of went under. But Carl Harden Jr. told me that he represented one of the investors in the Grape Patch Company, and, and the old boy was pretty much upset about losing his investment, and he was looking for this fellow Langford, and he finally ran on to him in, uh, in the Shamrock Hotel in Houston, uh, along about the time, a little before the time, that they brought Miss Davenport out or I say acquired the Davenport Ranch. And so this old boy found out that uh, Langford was in the top suite of the Shamrock Hotel and just leaving it up. So he, uh, with a valid purpose, going up there and, and either getting his money back on the Great Pet Company or killing him, he went off up there. And it's uh, Carl Horton tell me that the old boy went up there in that frame of mind. And when he came back, that instead of uh, uh, having any mayhem, with Langford, he bought an interest in his new cons uh, new company. Well, uh, anyway, uh, Sterling Holloway and I decided after Mr. Langford had it a little while that, that we ought to make a run at him and see if we couldn't buy it from, from him at a, some kind of a profit and uh, some kind of a proposition where we could make a profit, I mean. but So Sterling and I went down to visit Mr. Langford in this house that uh, Mrs. Davenport had built on the place, and we hadn't talked to him more than about 30 minutes until we found out that we were not... Uh, going to come out ahead on the cop on, on any kind of proposition we had with Mr. Langford, and uh, I think he had us uh, wanting us to play a slot machine he had in his living room there. But we 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 left him, and uh, I don't know how Mr. Langford got rid of it. I know Reuben Johnson came into possession of it under some circumstances, and then Reuben later transferred his interest to uh, Carby Robinson and his family, and that's where it lies now, and will probably be developed in some manner that will be uh, it will be a credit to the community.